if you do that, if you do that convincingly, if you do that with conviction, if you do that with such a clear message of what you're trying to tell the audience, that is when you give yourself the opportunity to succeed. That was Gregory Harrington, virtuoso violinist and master of multiple musical genres. And my name is Martin Nutty. And I'm John Lee. Welcome to another Global Irish Nation conversation here on Irish Stew. This episode of Irish Stew is sponsored by the Irish Heritage Tree Program. Celebrate your Irish roots by planting native trees for family and friends in the beautiful Golden Vale of Ireland. Go to irishheritagetree.com and use the exclusive discount code today. It's irishstew10 for 10% off. That code again is irishstew and the numeral 10. Keep the heritage of Ireland green and growing by going to irishheritagetree.com. Hi, folks. This is Martin Nutty with the Irish Stew Podcast. I am joined with a rather croaky John Lee. I'm not sure whether uh, this is a product of a New Year's uh, overindulgence. We're recording this on January 4th, so hopefully you're over your uh, New Year's festivities, John. Well, I, I'm really just trying to uh, get uh, approximate the Martin Nutty a sonority here in my voice. So uh, maybe maybe I've taken it a few steps too far. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, winter in New York, and I guess I got the winter cold. I hope that's all it is. But uh, we're going to we're gonna power through, and we're going to hear about something that sounds a lot better than my voice when we bring in our guest. Yeah, so we're uh, joined today uh, by our first virtuoso on the podcast. I'm delighted to have... Gregory Harrington on. Uh, Gregory is a Dublin-born violinist. He's based in New York City for the last 20 years or so. Um, he's classically trained, but he's comfortable playing both Bach and U2. He's performed in Lambeau Field in front of 70,000 rabid Green Bay Packer fans. He's also performed in the more intimate surroundings of Carnegie Hall. In 2019, he released the album Without You, which features both pop and jazz standards, and most recently, Glass Hour, which was released in 2020, unsurprisingly featuring the work of Philip Glass. And so, welcome, Gregory. Gentlemen, thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. So, I want to kick this off uh, with a piece of music that was recorded in the Perlman Building. So, Gregory, there was interesting soundscape behind that recording. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Um, well, that was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, it was actually quite unique. A good friend of mine, Darren McQuillan, had invited me in to perform for uh, Mr. Silverstein, who owns the World Trade Centers, on numerous occasions before. And the association with Downtown Magazine, th th that's really how I, I, I got to know them well. And when we were chatting Dara just said, Greg, I have this wonderful idea and wondering, would you be up for it? And he said, we're, the, the construction is so incredible at the moment in the Perlman Performing Arts Centre. We would love you to be the first musical guest to play for the workers, to play for the, for the construction workers before the building is in its shell or, or, or finished. So that was basically the premise. And we went in and it's beautifully documented, but it, there was something so surreal about it because you had this incredible steel structure and they walked Eleanor and I, Eleanor is um, an incredible cellist that I work with, Eleanor Norton. And it was quite breathtaking to see the rawness of just the steel structure and to imagine 
you just see the shell and the beautiful concert hall and the multi levels and whatnot. It was really, it was incredibly powerful because you're looking right over, out just at the World Trade Center, and it, it was really a stunning setting. And uh, added to the uh, the steel structures and the unfinished look, you're what you were wearing. You were in your your hard hat and safety vest and. Yeah, and it, yes, so we've been tested and, and, and protocoled and whatnot. So it's not usual for a, a priceless violin and a priceless mm-hmm. piano to saunter onto a construction site like this. But it was, yeah, so a hard hat, a reflective vest, and masked, obviously, and just really, really lovely because, you know, this, uh, the construction workers had stopped for lunch. And so you do hear a little bit of, 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 of machines going on in the background. And I know when I was at one point when I was playing, you see that the sparks that fly, you know, and so mm-hmm. just the you, welding. Yeah. You, you, you had, you had everything that a construction site would hold, but to have one or two of them come over afterwards and say, you know, that was absolutely wonderful and something that it just resonated with me and I got the music and I loved it. I think that's always, that's really is, you know, no matter when I perform, no matter where I perform, no matter what stage it is and stage is the broadest definition of the word stage. It's about making a connection, making a difference, making one person in the audience feel something that inspires them. And that's the kernel of of everything as an artist that you do. Mm. So this is not the first time, though, that you've obviously performed down at the uh, tip of Manhattan Island. And so that particular location, of course, uh, overlooks the footprint of the Twin Towers. I don't know if you actually ever performed in the Twin Towers. I'm guessing you probably did. Uh, And I know you've performed in the New Towers. Uh, Performed in the New Towers. I actually never performed in the... the Old Towers, as I, I had only really arrived in New York in 99, 2000. And I remember winning my first competition to play in Carnegie in 2003. So it was, it was after the attacks of 9-11. So I had never had a moment or never had the opportunity to play there. So just kind of rolling it back a little bit, you arrived obviously in New York sometime around 1999. And I've heard your origin story in terms of the violin, where you were at the Dublin Horse Show, you, I believe, saw a quartet playing. You turned to your mother and said, I want to do that. Absolutely, yeah. You talk to me a little bit about the role of your parents. Obviously, your mother was a big booster right away for you learning music. Correct, yeah. But I think your father was a little more skeptical about the prospect of you becoming a professional musician. He was, uh, and this was initially, you know, and I think I was, first of all, you know, I was so blessed to have two incredible parents, um, that fostered my love for the violin and that, that were just so supportive of that. And indeed a wonderful family that did that. Mom was very much the one for the arts. Dad was very much for, now listen, son, you need to get a real job. Uh, so, so there was that balance and, you know, mom passed away when I was very, very young in about 95. So she never, uh, she never really saw any of this, what, what I've done in the back of my mind. It's something that I'd always loved for her to experience. Um, dad, on the other hand, was the more pragmatic. And I think it was only when I did my London debut in 2000 in the South Bank Center that he really sort of, you know, had that feeling of actually, I think you can do this. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was, it was some great reviews that evening and, you know, he had come over and it was, it was, it was a beautiful crowd there. And I think from that point on, he was always supportive, but that's when he became just so organically supportive. And dad really was, you know, special because over the years, then he would accompany me on tour. And, you know, I would say, listen, dad, I, I am flying to New Zealand. I've got three week tour, North, South Island. Uh, any interest in coming and his, his attitude, you know, and he was 72 at this stage. Uh, and he was just absolutely, I'm all in. And I said, no, you know, something I said, you know, the only thing you have one job and you cannot mess this up. He said, what do you need? And he said, you will be rooming with me for the duration. And I want a nice bottle of wine in every hotel room. So you cannot, this up, right? so he was just, he was just his enthusiasm for, you know, for travel, adventure, cuisines, meeting new people. And, I, I consider myself quite outgoing, you know, you know an, an extrovert after, especially after a concert. 
And my dad was just, he even took it to another level, right? So after tours, he would be writing letters to ministers of the country that we'd been in, or he would, you know, he would, it was just, it was an incredible rapport that he developed with people all around the world. And I think it was a testament to him that so many people, when he passed a number of years ago, from all over the world, wrote to me about him, you know, and I, I knew. So he, he would accompany me, whether it was to China, Mexico, Colombia, you know, uh, or, or see me at Carnegie Hall or see me performing for um, the then Vice President Biden. You know, those things for me are always just incredibly special because they're just unique moments. And with each trip, I would say this, th- there was one story, but there was a number of stories. So yeah, that, uh, I was blessed to have two incredible parents. You know, sounds like uh, you had the Irish charm at work for you uh, through your father, that he was your he was your greatest ambassador. Um, t- tell us a little bit about uh, coming over uh, from Ireland to New York and maybe weave in there. You know, when you think of Irish music, you don't first think of classical music. So we often find people f- feel they have an advantage being Irish when they arrive in New York. How about being an Irish classical musician? Does that is that an advantage? Uh, well, truthfully, not really, uh, because classically our culture uh, doesn't have the same gravitas as traditional Irish music. Coming over in 1999, to, I I was beyond green, uh, you know, uh, inexperienced. I'd lived abroad in Madrid before, but never really left home for any lengthy period of time. And New York is one of those places where it's, you know, it's, it's the, the, the beauty about New York is you will always get a platform to do what you do and you need to deliver. So someone will say, look, kid, if you think you can do this, here's your platform, now do it. So it's binary. Your choice is you either deliver and you get an invite back or you don't and that door is shut. So I loved New York for that in that respect because it was it really fueled my inner entrepreneur. You know, I have a little bit of a different take on music to most classical musicians or to most classical crossover musicians, and you know th- that entrepreneurial side and that that ability to put yourself in front of people and and create opportunity and create instances where you can you can do something unique. Um, that's always been the thing that's driven me. Um, so New York was wonderful for that. And I think what was great was getting the, the invites back and, and just allowing things to build. You know, for, I, I went to college here. I wouldn't say I loved college here. I found it very lonely initially, uh, partially because, you know, I, I had that sort of stubborn Irish feel of, um, I didn't fly three and a half thousand miles to hang around with Irish people. Right. So not having my cultural identity, not having people around me that understood my cultural identity, I can look back in hindsight and say, actually, you know, that wasn't your most intelligent move ever, <laughs> you know, but I think it was also important for me to understand the process of what Irish culture means to me and how important it is to have those people in your life where you can go for a pint in the afternoon, every blue moon and have that exchange with somebody who gets the exact point where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, so came over, did my college. And I think it was lucky in the sense that early on I won a competition and then gave my debut in Carnegie Hall. I was the first Irish violinist to give a full solo debut in Carnegie Hall and in the, in the, in the recital hall. And then from there, it's just been a working career ever since and one that has taken me to all six corners of the globe, for want of a better word. And put me in positions where I have met some incredibly fascinating people and had those experiences. So that was the initial introduction to uh, New York and American culture. You know, I've heard my co-host Martin Nutty talk in similar ways about trying to, you know, come over here and not immediately want to hook up with his his Irish homies, but eventually uh, heading in that direction. I want to ask you something about the Irish music and, and your your style. You know, I read something once. Uh, it was a a writer t- talking about how about a century ago, American classical trumpet players developed a different sound from European players, a distinctive sound. And he attributed it to Louis Armstrong. That, and, and I don't imagine classical musicians were going back from the New York Philharmonic and playing 78s of Louis Armstrong to pick it up, but it was 
I think it was something that was in the air all around them, a new, a new sound for the trumpet. Uh, is there anything about Irish music and Irish traditional music and the, the, the tradition of violin or fiddle playing that kind of seeps into your sound, and into your approach to music? That's, that's a wonderful question because it's the influence of others is always something that you can absorb into your sound. I think with what I do and, you know, as you say, I'm, I'm just sort of finishing an album that is based on Irish music, actually, and a lot of traditional tunes that are recorded. It was actually, it was actually a live show that we recorded during the pandemic for the Irish Repertory Theatre. So let me say this. I, I have such love for what the incredible traditional artists and, and musicians of Ireland do and fiddlers and, and baron players and everything. Uh, it's not a, it's not a style that I was brought up with, but it's something that you absorb. And I think in anything that you do, the most important thing is you do it authentically to yourself. It's not about copying somebody else. It's not about trying to recreate what somebody else did. So for everything I do, whether that's, you know, whether it's zombie, which I did recently for the first time by the Cranberries, or, you know, Astor Piazzolla's Oblivion, where Piazzolla was at an Argentine tango. Yeah, he just revolutionized the tango. Or a beautiful cinematic piece by Ennio Morricone. What you have to do is you have to take what is in front of you, make it your own. But if you play a tango piece purely classically, you will leave the audience dead. If you play Irish music, purely classically, you will leave the audience dead. So it's about taking what you want to bring into this, seeing how you identify with that music and how you just make it completely authentic for you. And if you do that, if you do that convincingly, if you do that with conviction, if you do that with such a clear message of what you're trying to tell the audience, that is when you give yourself the opportunity to succeed. There, there, there is never any guarantee of succeeding with, with with anything you record, anything you step out on stage doing, never. But if you are so authentic, and you know, there's it's it's almost like there's there's the inner narcissism of when I step on stage, this is the only way that this music can sound. You know, and I mean narcissism in the sense not 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 in a negative way, but just that positive way. If you want to deliver that so uh, beautifully to the audience. And I think that's where I come from with every piece of music. I would listen to Brahms and Mozart and Debussy all day. I would listen to my teacher's teacher, Heifetz, you know, or, or, or the greats. I also love listening to uh, Miles Davis uh, mm. or John Coltrane or, 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 or Charlie Parker. I love listening to you take a band like Radiohead and how they compose symphonically and how they just just weave structure and, and sound, um, you know, or, uh, you know, Damien Rice, it, it, it's just incredible or Glenn Hansard, or it doesn't really matter. It's, it's somebody who is a beacon for the message that they're, they're trying to send. And I always get the feeling that when you listen to incredible artists on stage, it doesn't matter whether they picked up a cello, a flute, a piano, a guitar, their message would have been always so overwhelmingly strong, no matter what instrument they chose to be their voice. So it's not somebody just playing an instrument. It's how does someone resonate with the right voice that allow them to speak? So in Ireland, we didn't obviously have the same connection to Louis Armstrong or Miles Davis as they did over here, but have, and, and having played with, with, uh, I remember doing a concert with Martin Hayes, in the Irish Arts Centre, the Masters in Collaboration. And that was fascinating, you know, just trying to see how he made sound and how he evolved his sound and how things would grow from a rehearsal. And because it, it is traditional music and classical music are two different languages. So I'm not sure I answered that question. No, it's great though. It's finding where that resonance come to give something so completely authentic and unique to the audience and allowing them to make their mind up an opinion of whether it resonates with them. That's where it comes from, I feel. Beautiful. So I'll jump in here uh, and, and just start off simply by saying I listened to that concert that you did on the Irish Rep, and listeners, do yourself a favor and pull that up on YouTube. It's 
that first jig and a reel, you got me right away. I'm not a jig and a reel kind of guy, but you put a whole new spin on our traditional music that is exactly what you just described to us. And I really, really did enjoy that. Thank you. And just sticking with the theme of Irish music, a little bit earlier, you dropped into the conversation quite softly that you had played for then Vice President Joe Biden. I believe you played a Turlocal Carlin piece. And can you talk a little bit, you know, because there isn't a huge repertoire of music, you know, that, that would lend itself easily to, let's say, a classically trained violinist perform. So can you talk about that music choice and also about, you know, selecting music for these kind of events, maybe where you get to play for, you know, five or six minutes? Yeah, I think when you come across from the public stage to a more corporate stage or an event stage, the most important thing to me is the audience. No matter where you are, it's always about who's listening. It's never about you just doing your thing. And if you can make a connection with that room, you do that no matter how. So if there's an incredible story behind a piece and you feel it's something the audience should know, that's going to change their perception. Um, when I was invited to perform for the then Vice President Biden, I was just really wondering and I was trying to figure out what to play. And I did my research and his great-great-grandfather, Ambrose, played the violin and he was blind. And the more I read and the more I researched, he came from County Louth. And there is one of our national treasures is Tarlaka Carolla, uh, who is a blind Irish composer. So one of his many beautiful pieces uh, is called O'Carolla's Concerto. I think it was initially done for the lute or the harp. So I just did an arrangement of that mixed in with some other things. And playing it felt incredibly special because it, you know it's sometimes you can play in a hall and and you know you know what the setting was at that stage i had never played for a president before apart from my own president macalise and so i didn't understand the when you get on stage there's a little bit more pressure there's a little <laughs> bit uh you know either that you're unaware of and you know i remember and i it was one performance that i took my dad i flew my dad over for and going through, uh, you know, being there so early. And, um, you know, what I loved about it was that chatting with the Secret Service and they were they were so warm and helpful. And, you know, obviously they had their face on and they were doing their job, but, you know, they were really, they, they were just lovely. And the whole experience was phenomenal. But after the performance, I had this beautiful moment. And I had the reason I bring up the Secret Service, I said, look, I would love to just say, like, get a quick picture or just say a little thank you or whatever. And the guy, the gentleman in particular, was he said, no problem, leave it with me. So he, he just brought me right over. And when I spoke to uh, President Biden, you know, we had this lovely, lovely conversation. And I had given a, a, a very thorough introduction and just made it personal for him and included everybody in the room. And when we spoke, you know, he was, I will say this about politics. I, I never care whether anybody's left, right, blue, red. It doesn't matter. And he, he was just so incredibly warm to me uh, and just human. And, and we basically spoke about loss because I, I you know, spoke about my mother and obviously his loss. And he said to me, he said, Greg, he said, he said, people don't understand what it is like to be in front of people on a consistent basis and that what it takes to deliver in front of people. And he told me about, you know, when he was, 10 years old uh, and he would stand in front of the mirror and recite Yeats because of his stutter and the amount of work he had to do to overcome that, which is incredible, you know, for anybody that has, that has had one or that knows what that is like. And, you know, we talked about, uh, stay you know, Carolyn and his family and whatever. And at the very end of the conversation, he just said, Greg, he said, I want to say thank you so much for that. It was incredible. And he said, if I had your talent, I'd be present. <laughs> but I would see you again. So apparently, he <laughs> uh, that's beautiful. Um, 
you know, you, you, when you were telling that story, you started off talking about the uh, reaction of the audience and, and the communication of the audience. And it got me thinking about collaboration. I mean, that's in a way you're collaborating with the audience. But but the most important collaboration is is up there on the stage. And it's always kind of fascinated me the how classical musicians, or really any musicians, but let's say in the classical context, collaborate. You know, you're the soloist. You have a vision. The conductor has his or her vision. The individual players and the sections, they have their vision for how the music should sound. How does it all come together? Well, I think it depends on the group that you're playing with. So, for example, if I'm playing as a soloist with an orchestra, like a concerto by Mendelssohn or whatnot, it's really three three minds. So you have my interpretation, you have the orchestra, and you have the conductor who's the conduit. And it's basically a conversation with the conductor through his baton, every member of that orchestra follows so incredibly, right? So it's a thing of beauty to be the one listening to that in, in such close quarters, because when you know you're going somewhere with a phrase, let's say it's Beethoven or Brahms, and it's this beautiful conversation that you're having with the conductor and the orchestra is just right on the end of his baton. That's the expectation, but that's also that incredible moment where everything is just so uniform. And I think that's one of the hardest parts of the arts today because the funding isn't there where you can have four or five rehearsals with an orchestra to really, it's not about just playing it so you're together. It's You, you want to have those four or five rehearsals so you can probe that question with the conductor of, what did Beethoven mean here? And do we take it there? Do we take it somewhere else? You know, and they're the things that are, they're like the, the gold at the end of the rainbow. So unfortunately, it's harder these days because you only potentially get one rehearsal with the orchestra, two maybe, and, and one is a read through. So you don't get the same chance to go over something to really, really create something as unique. Then again, you're not recording it. You're just creating something live for, uh, and hopefully electric for, for an audience. So as solos with an orchestra, that's, that would be the first collaborative process. When you're, let's say when I'm working with, I have a number of groups, but I love working with both cellists with a two cello ensemble. And I work with someone who I've worked with for years, Eleanor Norton, and she's a dear, dear friend. And, you know, having that experience of performing for Natalie Merchant and Jay-Z or being you know, uh, first person Adele calls on tour and stuff like that. She has this incredible sensibility for not only classical, but uh, crossover and pop and singer songwriters. And so to have those conversations with her on stage, let's say for in U2, where it's very hard to say to a, to a classical musician, you know, okay, so what we're going to do is this is, this is the part that I'm, I'm trying to, trying to get to the audience of. This is where they vamped. And this is where they just decided to explore a chord or a sound. And classically, you know, we are so precise. And whether it's a jazz standard sheet or whether it's a Beethoven manuscript, the dots mean completely different things, but the destination is always the same. It's always the same of something like it's the only language we have that we don't need an alphabet to understand. It is so beautiful when it's done right. So getting that understanding of it's not that you have to embody what the sound of what they were doing, embody the searching that they were doing to get somebody that worked, that works with you like that. That's an incredible uh, moment when you capture that on stage. And so it really just depends on the ensemble whether the ensemble is two or three players, whether it's my, a jazz quartet that I work with, whether it's uh, an orchestra, it, does, it doesn't really matter. And I think, you know, I met, for those of you who are familiar with Irish rugby, Joe Schmidt, who was the coach and, uh, had a, you know, continued this friendship with him for many years after performing for the squad just in, in, in Chicago. But he would, you would always say, the most important thing you can do is recruitment recruit the right people and if you get on stage with the right person it's about having that musical conversation where you can give something and i come back to this i come back to this all the time so uniquely 
authentic to the audience. So it's collaborations are a beautiful thing. And it's about trying to find a way where you can communicate. I did this performance with, with, with an artist that I absolutely adore. Um, you know, one of, of uh, his sound has, has been incredible. And he and I had been touring uh, in different cities and just missing each other by a day or so. And I knew him, I knew a number of people in his band and whatnot. And I was, I know of, of all places I was, I was in a bar in Ireland and I recognized him and I just went over and I said, listen, I just, we haven't met, but, um, I just, I love your music and I just want to say hello. And he said, ah, Greg, listen, how are you doing? Come on, sit down, have a drink, have a pint. So we did and lovely chat and we kept in touch. And then I think he was over here on tour and we were in touch and he said, listen, what are you doing on Saturday night? And I said, nothing. He said, would you like to come and yeah, join me for one in the beacon? Uh, and I said, I ah, sure I might as well. I'd love to. So it was the day before and I still hadn't heard back from him of what we were going to play. Uh, and not being the tremendously uh, literate or, or like, uh, like in terms of chords and songwriting and stuff and, and those tabs and sheets, you know, when I, when I finally got the track, we said we were going to do the part. He said, look, let's do the parting glass. I said, great. And so I, I learned it in seven keys and cause I had no idea of what, what, what he was going to do. So when you listen to someone for so long and admire them, it's one thing, but when you're on stage and you were in the middle of their sound, it's something else. Most people would know the music of once and Glenn Hansard and he was just incredible. Right. And, and it was one of those moments where we said, look, I'll do a verse, you do a verse. I'll do a verse, I'll come in behind you and whatnot. And I played the first one, sang, I played the second one, and he was supposed to take over from me, and he just looked at me and he just waved his arm, right? And he said, continue. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, when, when you are structurally not, not prepared to continue, and you're <laughs> 3,000 people in the beacon, it's quite the moment for you. And it's quite the internal conversation that you have with yourself. And you just, and you go. But moments like that, or what it's all about, right? Of, of somebody who tugged his mom's arm at four and said, I want to play that to have those moments. It's, it, it just makes it so worthwhile. And I know I've deviated a little bit, but yeah, it's collaborating with people. You know, you, you don't collaborate with ensembles, you collaborate with people. And whether it's an orchestra of 140 people or whether it's two people, it's about trying to find that emotional connect on every note of that music. And you're talking about the collaboration in a couple of different contexts and that every note, um, you know, like in a jazz context, somebody like Thelonious Monk, like could play every note sounds wrong in a, in a sense, and it all comes out right. Uh, in the classical context, it seems like a very unforgiving medium. Um, I, I read classical reviews and some people just seem to concentrate on picking up nitpicking, picking up flaws rather than being kind of swept away by the music. Yeah, true. And I think, I think, you know, uh, you don't play a live concert to read the review, you know, and, and if you are a reviewer, uh, reviewing the live concert as the, the CD should have been recorded, you're completely missing the point of what that music is doing right there and right then. Um, there are some incredible reviewers. They really are. And they know their music and they know so much about the art and the art form and they're about trying to trying to be just deliver their authentic self on, on a page and there are viewers that you know have no and there's a number that come to mind and uh that they, they just seem to be so wrapped up in the controversial side of creating a review that will cause conflict so that people will read their review and i'm just thinking that's a bit jaded for me, right? It's great. Yippee. I'm happy yeah. for you. <laughs> you. You lost me a long time ago and, and I'm sure you, I'm sure you're not going to, you know, be in tears because I'm not reading you, but it really means nothing to me because it's so easy to knock. It's so easy, but it's so easy to knock great people as well. So like when, when you have a Grammy winner coming through that when I'm sitting in the audience and I'm saying, this is blowing my mind and their viewer has their, their score there and they say, Oh, they were too little, too elaborate with that on the Sibelius. No, I didn't like this. I didn't like this. You're thinking, Anna, here now. Mm -hmm. That's really not for me. You know, that, that you, you are completely missing that uh, intangible 
of how music moves people and how somebody's individual performance can move them or how it resonates and connects. And it's live is not about getting it recorded perfectly. And I think that's the, one of the dangers of, of the time that we're in where so many people are videoing and sticking stuff on their iPhone and posting and whatnot, where you're expecting there is that subconscious pressure on the artist where you, where, where the audience is, is sometimes expecting perfection that you can get in a studio, but you know, you're, you're not supposed to get on the stage in order to create something organic. So I think we'll take a little break and speak and uh, play a little music, specifically Autumn Leaves, played by Joseph Cosma. It'll be a nice opportunity to hear Gregory have the opportunity to play a more relaxed format than traditional classical, and then we'll come back. love the warmth of that sound and the freedom that this crossover music affords you but let's talk about something a little more challenging not that playing that beautiful jazz standard isn't challenging but the rigor and challenge of putting together a recording that involves an orchestra that involves transcription, in other words, adaptation of music. Uh, and specifically what I'm referring to is your 2020 album, The Glass Hour. What don't we as day-to-day listeners understand about the challenge of that kind of a project? That's a, an interesting question because for that 65 minutes of music, you had years of work going into it. Um, challenge was, there many challenges, but many beautiful challenges. One of the things that I wanted to do was create a work for violin and orchestra that had not been done before. You know, and I wanted to create a transcription for violin and orchestra that went back to the old days of Milstein and Heifetz and Chrysler, who would write their own transcriptions about a hundred years ago and play them on stages. Um, and have that have that incredible effect uh, with an audience of, of creating something new and the hours was a movie that i saw and just the, the music it's like anything it just resonated with me and it was just something you know philip glass does not use many notes and he uses them repetitively but it's not like anybody else how they repeat notes it is there's something mesmeric and just incredible in how he conceives his music and how he evolves um, uh, that, that, those progressions. And the hours just always struck me and uh, as a beautiful, uh, a beautiful movie score. And when I came to, to, to writing a, a, a transcription, I went, I went to Sony, I went to Paramount and their principle was as long as you keep the harmonic structure the same, you can be as creative as you want with the violin line. And so I wrote this for violin and, and orchestra. And it's that same feeling of wanting to leave something where you feel so strongly about it out there and create something new so that other violinists can play it. And, you know, what's wonderful is that there's been many other orchestras that have taken the piece and gone with it and the arrangement. So the recording itself, we had two days. So I had been working, I'd actually been studying conducting in Juilliard with a, uh, a wonderful teacher uh, who is now a dear dear friend uh, called Mark Shapiro and one of the things that I wanted to do when I was doing that was I really wanted to understand the conversation between the soloist and conductor from the conductor's point of view uh, and because I, I felt that that would enable me just to help prep for for concerts where there wasn't enough time to, to have that full exploration of, of the music uh, and Mark was incredible 
really, really was. And we, we, we got on so, so well and developed this lovely rapport. So when it came to doing this project, I actually asked him and I said, because when you go in to record and you just have two days, I want somebody, somebody that I implicitly trust. I want somebody that I implicitly trust to communicate to the orchestra right immediately. Uh, and his, his ability to connect with those, even those that speak, you know, and in this case, those that speak a different language was remarkable. So we had two days to record that 60 minutes of music. And it was, I think we got it all done with, with, with about two minutes to spare. So that in itself, normally where you, where you have four days, some of those takes were just, uh, normally like in a, in a classical recording, you will get an edit anywhere from 10 seconds to 60 seconds per thing. There was, there was sections where we just didn't have that opportunity, right? And it was very much like a, a high pressure, high driven semi live recording, right? But, you know, the orchestra had this Janacek Philharmonic out in Ostrava, uh, in the Czech Republic. There was something uh, lovely about their sound. Uh, and the process was just hard to describe, hard to describe because so much between all the rights, uh, getting all the rights done for Sony, getting all the rights done for Paramount, and getting everything uh, streamlined for that recording. Yeah, I think there's clearly complexity at play in this effort, me as the listener, and it has been to some degree the soundtrack of my uh, COVID shut-in moments. It gets regular playing. I'm I'm a huge fan of this recording uh, and a huge fan of Philip Glass, and I think you do you do more than justice to them, but I'm going to play a clip right now. It's from the hours. It's the uh, third part of the suite that you put together on the album. And just listen. It's spectacular. Wonderful, Martin. Well, this this one thing that sort of comes to mind about this, and it's um, that you know during the pandemic when time was almost standing still, uh, in this album, I, what I find so fascinating is that it's paired with the American Four Seasons, and it really does go through that juxtaposition of hours in a day, days in a season. It's sort of, you know it 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 just uh, um, questions time almost and given the year that we've been in uh how the passing of time has either gone so slow or so long it's just it's something that just always sticks in the back of my mind when it when it comes to this album uh gregory as uh, speaking of time we're we're heading towards the end of our engagement here but uh, i want to just touch on one more subject briefly uh earlier in the conversation you mentioned we're entrepreneur and you talked about how your father wanted a more practical course for you initially, and I believe you just you had a, a you studied business in college in in Ireland. We've had a lot of great conversations with people in the creative world who have who are who are very good business people at the same time. They've figured out uh, ways to diversify what they do to uh, become very viable business people. Uh, that enables them to be very viable artists. Could you speak a little bit about uh, your entrepreneurial approach? And I know you share it on the stage uh, in a a speaking context as well. Correct. Yeah. So, so apart from the side that, you know, I've managed, I've promoted, uh, I've done everything for my own career. Um, You know, I've, I've sort of also parlayed that into taking 25 years of, of being on a world stage, whether that's on the BBC or, you know, in Carnegie or any global stage and taking that experience and I deliver keynotes in term, um, for a presentation. So, uh, whether you're a CEO or, or, uh, C-suite or whoever that needs to stand up in front of your audience, whether that's the conference hall, whether that's the boardroom, 
whether that's going on to CNBC or Fox News or wherever that is, had the art of delivering a presentation and the art of delivering your authentic self is quite a skill. And so many companies have product rollouts and they are, uh, you know, that their CEOs or their, 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 their people are in the media and they're, it takes an awful lot longer to be prepared than people think. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one part of it. And the other part of it is it's a keynote on leadership and how connecting in music, the parallels between connecting and music uh, enables you to connect to your workforce and those that you manage. But yeah, it's, it's almost symbiotic how music can be that wonderful segue into business. I just think that this wonderful connection between music and business, because for anybody in that leadership position, it is about creative solutions. And it is about um, trying to figure out what you haven't seen before. Uh, and I think anytime you walk on a stage, your vista is different. Anytime you are whether that's you know eighty thousand people uh, in Lambeau Field um, in December, when you find out that you can't feel your fingertips, but you have to play a national anthem, <laughs> figure out a way to succeed. So that there's so many parallels and there's so many incredible things to impart from this musical journey. It's it's um yeah it's 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 wonderful and it's wonderful to see you know corporate clients that have transformed in, in that respect. Well, while we're on the uh, the business uh, line of uh, thought here, let's move into the Seamus plug, a chance for you to do some business here and, and, and alert all our listeners to, you know, where should we be looking next for Gregory Harrington? What should we know and what, what would you like us to put the word out? Uh, I think, honestly, at the moment, it is uh, how does one successfully emerge from the pandemic? Broadway has this built-in national marketing campaign on the morning shows where the independent artists and the independent uh, music theaters and theater production companies don't. So it's about trying to find the audience again, where in halls, I would normally, you know, fill them out with the pandemic. It's, can you see, can you get 30 to 40% in at the moment? So it is a struggle. I think it's going to take another year with that. I've got an, uh, an album coming out, I think in April based on actually Irish traditional music. I should say my take on Irish traditional music. If you want to find a little bit more about me on my site and the corporate speaking and corporate uh, consulting, um, the link, I think you, you guys will be able to provide a link. And there's an, just a number of projects, you know, for possibly 12 months and more, but it's, it's um, I think the immediate is how to get back successfully onto a concert stage, because that is, that is the biggest, I think, a problem most, most, independent artists are finding at the moment and so with that gregory i'd like to thank you on behalf of our listeners and letting us a little bit on the inside of your world and just kind of pulling the curtain back it's been you know a real pleasure uh looking at it from your side of the stage and i know john and me are both looking forward to seeing you in a more traditional uh, setting up on the stage and we'll put lots of links into our notes here. I uh, can't recommend Gregory's music strongly enough. And we're looking forward to the next live performance. John, Martin, thank you so much for your time. It's been a, actually, it's been an absolute pleasure being here. Love the conversation. Bravo, bravo. That was movement number three of the Philip Glass Violin Concerto Number no. Two, The American Four Seasons. In reflecting on our conversation, John, one thing popped out in the course of that conversation was Gregory's work with Mark Shapiro on the Glass Hour, uh, the creation of that album. It's interesting how their relation started out. Gregory is trying to expand his portfolio of knowledge by understanding conducting from a conductor's point of view. And that's what Mark Shapiro does. 
they built a bond. And then eventually, when Gregory wanted to work on this glass arrow project, he reached out to Mark to act as his conductor for a very intense recording effort. And so it's interesting the paths that we end up taking. We start off planning to do one thing, you build a friendship, and then you build an artistic creation. And and a collaboration, right? And, and that's the part of the conversation I really uh, that stuck out for me was that what's going on on stage, the collaboration with the orchestra, the players, and the soloist, in this case, uh, Gregory. And he talked about that conversation with the conductor through the end of his baton. That was like such a nice, nicely turned phrase. And then later, he just he talked about the great feeling when the orchestra is just right at the end of the conductor's baton. I, I love that. And then along a similar vein, we talked about whether it's a jazz standard sheet or a Beethoven manuscripts, the dots mean completely different things, but the destination is always the same. Yeah, I loved it. Hey, Martin, before we sign off, what are we going to ask from our listeners this time? Well, one of the things that we like to do is to keep our listeners up to date by sending out emails, but we need your email address to do that. And if you go visit irishstewpodcast.com, right on our homepage, there's a place where you can enter your name and your email address. We're not going to share that out with anybody else. It's used simply to keep you up to date. So take a moment and go visit artiststewpodcast.com. And in the upper right, you're going to find our email sign-up form. Sounds good to me. Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty, with Donald Bowens on drums, Cahalo Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com. Hold up. 